Lord, we thank you for your word and your truth, and I pray that you would speak to each of our hearts through through this time together, that your word, uh, as you promised, would not return void and it would change us from the inside out, that you would inspire us and motivate us to be um, good stewards of your word and, and students of your word and, and, how we, and help us to understand how that affects our relationship with you. Uh, the, the fact that you give us your word to pursue relationship with you. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our understanding um, and, and help us to, to see uh, what you desire us to see through this epistle. So bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So uh, if you remember, if you were here last week, um, and, and there's a lot going on, and I know that, and I don't mind repeating myself, and um, it'll come together eventually. But, but one thing we talked about was um, being in the Word more. Why? Well, this happened uh, several weeks ago. As I was just in my personal devotions one morning, uh, I was reading in Acts, and I was in Acts chapter 17, and that's where we get our mission statement from, turn the world uh, right side up. Um, and, and I was thinking, how did they do this? Well, it said they preached the word empowered by the Spirit. So that's how we turn the world right side up. So then it got me thinking, why don't people do this? <laughs> why don't people preach the word empowered by the Spirit? And I think one of the main reasons people don't do that is because they're not confident in the scriptures. They're not confident in the word of God. They're afraid that they might have a conversation. Someone will ask them a hard question. They won't have the answer. And I think a lot of it is rooted in confidence. So how do we grow our confidence in the word? Romans ten seventeen says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The more we're in the word, the more we're going to be confident of the word, the more likely we are to share the word. And the funny thing is in that chapter is the answer. In Acts chapter 17, we're introduced to this group called the Bereans, right? They were known as students of the word. It says they received the teaching from the apostles. Then they searched the scriptures. They found that it was true and they believed. They received, they sought, and their faith grew. And this is such an obvious thing, but we see it all throughout scripture. There's obviously a direct correlation between us being in the word and our faith growing. And if we want to turn the world right side up, we got to have to we have to have the faith to do that. And we have to have a proper understanding of the word of God. And this is going to be Jude's primary focus. See, there's a problem going on in the early church. And this problem is that there's a lot of false teaching. There's a lot of false doctrine. There's a lot of false teachers coming into the church and leading God's people astray. So what Jude is going to exhort the church to do is get back to the Word of God, get back to the teachings of the apostles, get back to the sayings of Jesus Christ. And how do we get back to the truth? Well, we got to be in the truth. And the title of this teaching is Keep Yourself in the Word of God. Keep yourself in the Word of God. We stray away when we're not in it. So if we don't want to stray away from the truth, we got to be in it. we got to keep ourselves in it. Not just get in it occasionally, but keep ourselves in it consistently. Jude, he tells us why he's writing this letter. If you look at verse 3, he says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. So he said, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, our common faith. But the Spirit convicted me to speak of something different. 
it says, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. That's the point of this book, to exhort us to contend in the faith. We'll understand what that is as we break down the text, but basically we can only contend in the faith if we have a proper understanding of the faith. And we'll only have a proper understanding of the faith if we're in the Word of God. If you would with me, Jude, verse 1, says Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, Jude is also referred to as Judas. Okay. Now, likely Jude wasn't referring to himself as Judas. Why? Because of Judas Iscariot. He didn't want to get confused with the guy that betrayed Jesus. So he says, let's just say Jude for short. It's the same name. Jude and Judas. They're, um, it's like Michael and Mike. <laughs> it's the, it's the same name. Now, we see that Jude, he refers to himself as a brother of James. He's also a brother of Jesus. Let me show you. In Mark chapter 6, in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, it says, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. Jude is Judas, the brother of Jesus. He refers to himself as the brother of James. What James? Not James and John, the Zebedee's sons. James, the brother of Christ, who later we see became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. That's in Acts chapter 15. Now, what's really interesting about these two brothers is that originally they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. In John chapter 7, verse 5, it says, the Lord's brothers, they didn't believe in him. They didn't believe he was the Messiah. So what happened? Why all of a sudden does James become the leader of Jerusalem, ultimately getting persecuted for his faith? Why is Jude now writing an epistle glorifying God? What happened? It's the resurrection. They saw Jesus in his resurrected form. They went from doubt to full-fledged faith, so much so that they gave their lives to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 14, we see just that. After the Lord had ascended, he told the apostles to await in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come. Guess who's with those apostles? Acts chapter 1, verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now his brothers are part of this group. They're disciples now. They're followers of Jesus Christ once again because they saw the risen, risen Lord with their own two eyes. And this is where it gets interesting. Jude he doesn't refer to himself as a brother of Jesus. What does he refer to himself as? A bondservant of Jesus Christ. Basically what he's saying is, I can't even look at Jesus as my equal. I'm not just a brother. Our relationship isn't just, he's my older brother and I'm his little brother. No, no, no. This relationship now is he's my master and I'm his servant. That's the only proper way to respond to what Christ did on the cross and then rise from the dead. He is my master. He's not just my brother, but he wants us to know that's why he tells us that he's a brother of James. 
This is fascinating. Going from a place of disbelief, not believing that Jesus was the Messiah, to calling him his master. Now, I don't think anybody would willingly call their sibling their master. Okay, unless they made you, right? You wouldn't look at your brother and say, Master, I'm your bondservant. Unless they did something like super special, right? Unless they, they made themselves appear to be worthy to be your master. I wouldn't look at my brother or sister and say, Master, I'm your bondservant. But this is exactly what Jude is doing because Jesus did do something so special. He proved himself to be God in the flesh. He proved to Jude that he wasn't just his brother, but that he was his creator. Jude has a change of heart. No longer is he just my half-brother, if you will. He's my master. Look who this letters to. Jude verse 1. After he introduces himself, he tells us to those who are called, sanctified by God, the father and preserved in Jesus Christ. Who is this letter to? Well, it's written to the church, not just the early church. This is written to every church, past, present and future. That's why this is in the Bible. It's for all churches of every age. And look at what he says in describing the church. The called, the sanctified, and the preserved. The called, yeah, you've been called. Every single person in this room has been called by God. Well, what are the credentials of this calling? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, these are the qualifications of someone who's been called by God, okay? It's somewhat insulting, but it's absolutely true when we look at these words. He says in verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. I think we all qualify for at least one of these things, if not all of them. Foolish, weak, base. He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't pick the cream of the crop. I picked you guys so that no flesh could glory in my presence, that you would know that it was about what I'm doing and not about what you're doing. These are the credentials of the call. Well, what's the calling of the call? We see that in Scripture as well. What is the called called to do in Luke chapter five, early on in the Lord's ministry, he called some of the apostles, specifically the ones who were fishermen in the midst of them fishing. You know, they're doing their job. They're trying to provide for their families. Jesus interrupts them, if you will. In Luke chapter five, verse nine, he says, for he and all who were with them were astonished at the catch of fish, which they had taken and so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed them. The calling of the called is to forsake all and follow them. That's what we see the early disciples do. They forsake everything and follow Jesus. Yeah, the qualifications, 
We're all there. We can all fulfill the qualifications. They aren't hard. But what about the calling? Forsaking all to follow Jesus. That's always been the calling of the called. It always will be. Forsake all. Follow the Lord. Not only does Jude reference the called, but he also referenced the sanctified. Now, when he says sanctified, it literally means to be set apart or to be made holy or to be made perfect. Now, there's really two meanings of this in Scripture. We see there's the position of sanctification, meaning that when God looks at us, he sees the finished product. He sees us as holy. He sees us as perfect. He sees us in our eternal state. Okay, that's how he sees us because he operates in eternity. But that's not necessarily how we are in the present age. See, there's the positional side of sanctification, but there's also the process of sanctification. The process of sanctification is the process by which you're made holy. It's 2 Corinthians 3.18. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Hear that? He's transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. He's doing that by His Spirit, meaning that as believers, we're called to grow. We're called to look more and more like Jesus every day. We're called not to go backwards, but to continue to move forwards. Disciples are marked by sanctification. Who you are today should be different than who you were yesterday or the year before. It's this steady growth that happens. That's the process of sanctification. He says, the called, the sanctified. Then he says, the preserved in Jesus Christ preserved yeah god is protecting us god is preserving us for what for such a time as this he's protecting us for a purpose he's preserving us for a purpose it's not just for nothing yes it's because he loves us but he has stuff that he desires us to accomplish in this world that's why he calls us in matthew chapter 5 verse 13 matthew 5 verse 13 he says his followers he likens them to the salt of the earth The salt of the earth. What does that mean? Well, it means quite a few things, but one of the main things they used salt for was to preserve food. Okay, You didn't have refrigerators, so food would go bad easily. When you put it in salt, it would last longer. The Bible likens the Word of God as food. See, as disciples, as followers of Jesus Christ, we're called to preserve the Word of God. We're called to preserve it. We're called to fight for it. We're called to spread it. He preserves us in hopes that we'll preserve his word. Jude, verse 2, he gives us the heart and why he's communicating this epistle. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Before Jude gets into the warning of the false doctrine and false teachers, he wants to understand, he wants the church to understand, this is the heart that I'm coming to you with. It's a heart of love. It's a heart of mercy. It's a heart of peace. This is also the heart of God's word. Point number one, the heart of God's word is love. The heart of God's word is love. He says, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. You could say that mercy and peace exist within the confines of God's love. You summed it up in one word. 
Love would be the word. In fact, when John sums up the character of God in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, he says, God is love. God is love. But you know what else? In John 1, Jesus tells us, or sorry, John tells us about Jesus, that he is the word of God. Follow me here. God is love. Jesus is the word. The word of God is love. The word of God is love. It's summed up in love. What do I mean? The Bible is God's love letter to his people. It's his love letter to his people. It's to help us understand how much we're valued by God. And also to help us understand who he is. Imagine this. Imagine if the love of your life wrote you a love letter. Wouldn't you read it? Like, wouldn't you read it? Or would you say, nah, I'm just going to put it on the nightstand. Or I'm going to put it in the cabinet. Or I'm going to, I'll get to it when I can. Think about that. That's what it is. The love of your life, the one being that can love you more than any other being wrote you a love letter. How foolish would we be not to read it? It helps us understand how much God values us, how much God loves us, helps us understand who he is. If, if I knew that, wow, the God of this universe wrote me a love letter, I want to know how much he loves me. I want to know who he is. Who is this God that would love me so much? And he gives us that to us freely through the Bible. It's a gift. The heart of it is summed up in love. Jude, verse 3. He says, Beloved, While I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude's primary purpose initially in writing this letter was to just talk about their common salvation. But then as he was praying and as he was writing, the spirit of God convicted him. Hey, you need to you need to challenge them. You need to exhort them to contend earnestly for the faith. This is point number two, contend earnestly for the faith, contend earnestly for the faith. What does that mean? Well, this word contend in the Greek is the same word they use for wrestling. It literally means to fight for the faith. It means to agonize over the faith. See, faith isn't just something that we grow in. It's something that we fight for. And as we're in the word and our faith is growing and it's changing us from the inside out, we're more likely to fight for the faith. See, Paul, in Second Timothy chapter 4, Most scholars suggest that this was the last book that Paul wrote. This is the last chapter of that book. And this is one of his his main lessons that he learned and he wanted to get across to Timothy. He says this in 2 Timothy 4 verse 7. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He realized that was the primary, one of the primary purposes that God had him here to fight for the faith, not just to grow in it, but to allow it to spread, to get it across to others, to defend the faith. And that's what Peter tells us in first Peter chapter three, verse 15, along those same lines, 
Peter, he encourages the church, he encourages us to do just that, to defend the faith. And verse 15, verse Peter 3.15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense. That's that, that Greek word apologia, which we get the word or the term apologetics from. Give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We're called to defend the faith. We're called to fight for the faith. If your faith ends with you, then it's not a faith that the Bible's teaching about. Our faith is called to spread. It's not called to end with us. It's called to spread from us. The Bible teaches of a contagious faith that my faith should rub off on other people's faith, that people should be able to see me and be able to see you and see Christ in us. The, the hope of glory Are we defending our faith? Are we fighting for our faith? Are we communicating our faith? Because this is why Jude is writing this letter. He wants them to fight for it. But in order for them to fight for it, they have to understand it. So those are the things. Understand your faith. Know the word of God so that you can fight for it. So that you can spread it. That you have the reason, a reason, for the hope that is in you. Now what this doesn't mean is that you're going to have an answer for everything. Okay, I don't have an answer for everything. I know I never will. That any hard question anyone asks you about the Bible, you're going to have an answer. But I will tell you this. There are a lot of good answers out there. And if you seek it, you'll find it. Your confidence will grow in it. You'll be able to communicate that answer. In doing so, you're defending your faith. You're contending earnestly for the faith. He also says here in verse 3, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. The word of God, it's finished. We don't need to add to it. So when people add to this book, they're contradicting the scripture, let alone uh, the last part of Revelation chapter 22. We don't need to add to this book. It's finished. The work is done once and for all delivered to the saints. Jude verse four. Here comes the warning. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness, and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Certain men crept in. Specifically, he's referring to false teachers that are spreading false doctrine. I might uh, call them uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. They're leading the the flock of God astray by the, the doctrine that they're spreading in the churches. So this was a big problem that was happening. Other apostles mentioned this same exact thing. So, Jude is challenging them, exhorting them to be in the Word of God, to know the truth of God's Word so they won't be led astray. Because here's the reality. The less we know about the truth, the more prone we are to be led believing a bunch of lies. <laughs> so so if we aren't firm in and, and pursuing God in the truth of His Scripture, we're bound to be led to believe a bunch of lies. And you hear some of the lies out there when you look at our culture and some of the th- stuff that spread when when you look at even some some truths that the government try to sell as truth when you look at even public schools some private schools family friends a lot of people believe a lot of lies and if we don't know the truth we're going to be led away 
led astray from the truth of God's word. That's why it's so important for us to know the truth, to understand the truth. Sadly, but truly, a lot of people just believe anything that they're told. <laughs> you, you sound convincing. You sound like you know what you're talking about. So, so I'm just going to believe it. Don't be that person. Be like the brands that seek this stuff out on your own. Even me, the stuff that I tell you, don't just take it and say, I know that's truth. Seek it out on your own. You don't have to agree with me about everything. Most of you know me well enough to know that I'm very uh, persistent to teach the truth of God's word. But the point is, people were getting led astray left and right because they didn't know the word. They didn't know the scriptures. They didn't hear something and say, wait, 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 that's off. That's wrong. That's different than what Jesus said. And when we don't know the truth, it's bound to happen to us just as it did the early church. We can't just take as truth everything that that anyone tells us. We got to seek it out on our own. And the beautiful thing about that is Jesus says, I am the truth. I am the truth. He also says, seek me and you'll find me. So here's the promise. Jesus is the truth. If you want to know the truth, he says, if you seek the truth in me, you will find the truth about me. You will. It's a promise. And he'll never break his word. He'll never break his promises. But we also have to look at the other side of that. If we're not seeking the truth in Christ, we're going to believe a bunch of lies. We're going to believe anything anyone tells us. But when we seek the truth in Christ, we'll find the truth. Less likely will we be carried astray by these false doctrines that the early church, some of them were being carried away and believing these things. Jude verse 5, But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So he's going to give us several examples all from the Old Testament to get this specific message across. Before I get into the message, look what he says in verse 5 again. I want to remind you, though you once knew this, he's speaking to the church as if they should know these things. Okay, So he's using these examples with the assumption that they should understand these things. So if we read these examples as we kind of break them down a little bit, and we don't know what's being talked about here, that's an exhortation for us to to read about these things. If you don't know about the story of, of Cain, if you don't know about Balaam, if you don't know about Korah, then look into these things, because Jude is talking to us as if we should know about this stuff. He's saying, hey, this is stuff that you guys should should already know, but I'm going to remind you, and he's going to use these examples to get us specific message across and the first example that he uses is how god saved israel from egypt and it says at the end of verse five out of the land of egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe god delivered the jews from egypt but the jews because of their disbelief they faced destruction in the wilderness point number three disbelief leads to destruction disbelief leads to destruction Think about this. God did tons of miracles. He, 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 he sent all the plagues. He parted the Red Sea. He provided manna from heaven. He had water come out of a rock. Like, you name it, God did it. He proved that he is the God of miracles, their creator who loves them, and they still didn't enter the promised land because of disbelief. If you look at Numbers chapter 14, in Numbers chapter 14, 
this is referenced, God speaking of the Hebrew people back during their time in the wilderness. And he says in Numbers 14, verse 22, because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs, meaning they're without excuse, like he's shown them enough for them to believe, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. He did the miracles. He proved himself to the Hebrew people. He took them out of Egypt, but then in the wilderness, because of disbelief, they faced their own destruction. In Hebrews chapter 4, if you want to write it down, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 19, the author of Hebrews talks about the same topic. They were destroyed in the wilderness because they didn't believe. This wasn't an intellectual belief. That's not what the word there uh, is being described at. That's not, that's not what we're saying, that they didn't intellectually believe that God was who he said he was. It means they didn't trust him. They didn't believe his word. They didn't believe that they could, he could actually get them to the promised land. And you know what the big, uh, fear factors was, were in that situation? It was because there were giants in the land. There were big obstacles that they didn't want to face. No, 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 no. We should turn back. We shouldn't enter the promised land because we're scared. So they allowed themselves to be led by fear and not by faith. And God said, because you didn't believe me, you're not going to enter. You're not going to enter because you don't trust me and you don't trust my word and you don't trust my promises. Disbelief leads to destruction. If we're not believing God, meaning if we're not trusting God and trusting his word and trusting his promises, we're going to lead ourselves to destruction. We're going to fall short of the abundant life that God wants from us. Why? Because when we're being led by fear, it prevents us from taking steps of faith and God calls us to walk by faith and not by sight. That's what that relationship looks like. When we don't practice that lifestyle, we miss out on so many different things. The Jewish people, they missed out on the promised land. Not all of them, but most of them because they didn't trust God and his word. So how do we battle against that, that disbelief that leads to destruction? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If we want to grow in our faith, then we have to be in the word of God. The more we're in it, the less we'll doubt. Now, in all transparency, when I first came to the Lord, there were so many things that I doubted in scripture. I was like, I don't know about this. I don't know about that. I don't. But, you know, as time goes on, the more I study this book and even other books that support this book, the more I'm in it. The more my faith grows and the less there's doubt in my life. I have so much confidence in the truth of scripture. Like it's not even funny and it's not because I'm a pastor and I have to. And it's not about that at all. It's because I'm in the word and as I'm in the word, my faith grows, my confidence grows in the scripture. I know a lot of people that struggle with doubt and it's a, it's a common thing even for believers. But I will tell you this, the majority of the time, the people that are struggling with doubt the most are the people that are reading the least. That are in the word of God. Why? Gives us the key. If you want to grow in faith, be in the word. Pursue me. It's like, I'm struggling with my faith. Have you been pursuing the Lord? Have you been in the word of God? And I'm not taking anything uh, away from tragedies and circumstances that get us to question certain things. But I can tell you, the more you're in this book, the more your faith will grow and the less you'll experience doubt. It's a promise in scripture. See, the Israelites, they doubted God's word. They doubted his promise. Concerning the promised land, they didn't trust him. 
so they face their own destruction. Moving on, Jude, verse 6, And the angels, who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now, there's a lot of details uh, in these stories that Jude communicates concerning the Old Testament. For time's sake, we can't talk about uh, all of them. I'll briefly describe some of them. But he refers to these angels that left their heavenly abode. Ultimately, what they did was reject God's authority, reject God's word. They didn't do what they knew they were supposed to do. They went their own way. They walked down their own path. Now, many people believe that these angels that are being referenced here are the same angels in Genesis chapter 6, the sons of God that intermarried with the daughters of men and produced the Nephilim, the giants, okay? There's some indication there, but we can't say that as a matter of fact. And a lot of people will say that because the next example that he uses is Sodom and Gomorrah. What was their sin? Well, mainly, among other things, sexual immorality, okay? Uh, So we see in Sodom and Gomorrah, they were doing what was unnatural. Ultimately, what they were doing was breaking God's standard. They were saying, I don't want God's standard. I want my own standard. I don't care if this is how I was created. I'm going to do my own thing. So they too, just as the angels, they were rejecting God's authority. They knew the truth, but they didn't walk in the truth. He uses this example to communicate something very similar to what happened to the Hebrews in the wilderness. Look what it says at the end of verse 7. The angels, people of Sodom and Gomorrah, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. They didn't follow God's standards, so they faced destruction. They didn't choose to submit to God's word. They didn't choose to submit to God's authority. So they were destroyed. They had consequences. See, when we're not walking in God's word, we're walking towards destruction. Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 32, John 8, 32, he says, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. But it's not just about knowing it. It's about walking in what we know. And there's freedom there. But when we choose to walk outside of what we know, to not walk in the truth, there's no freedom there. There's bondage. There's destruction. This is what happened to these groups of people. He goes on in Jude, verse 8. Likewise, all these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, and these things, they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Okay, so we'll break this down a little bit. 
when he refers to the dreamers, he's referring to the false teachers in the church. Okay, And he says, just as the angels rejected God's authority, just as Sodom and Gomorrah rejected God's standards, so too did these men. They rejected the authority of God. They're teaching something that's contrary to the truth of God. And it says in verse 10, but these speak evil of whatever they do not know. They don't know the truth, so they speak evil of the truth. And this happens so often. People that don't know the truth about Christ, they bash the truth about Christ. And they'll say, oh, really? Uh, Christianity, it's a crush. You worship a guy that's dead, yada, yada, yada. And they'll say all these different things. Why? Because they don't know the truth. And they don't know the power of the gospel. Paul says, this is how people were way back then, too. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this shouldn't surprise us. Many of us may have even, even uh, experienced this in our own lives before we knew the truth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So those that don't know the truth of the cross and what it meant and what it was about... They think it's foolishness. Why would God have to come to die on a cross? If He's all-powerful, couldn't He have done it a different way? But those who know the power of the gospel, they know the truth of the gospel, they're experiencing salvation. But the truth of the matter is, you don't know the power of the gospel until you've experienced it. It's almost like at, uh, on some level, we almost can't hold it against these guys because they don't understand, they don't know. Yes, they'll be judged for what they're doing here, and Jude will talk about it later, but they haven't experienced the grace of God. They haven't experienced the power of the gospel, so they bash the truth of the scriptures. He goes on and uses these examples in verse 11. He speaks of Cain, of Balaam, and of Korah. There are a lot of details in these stories as well. But the main point, once again, is they rejected God's word. They rejected God's authority. Remember, God spoke to Cain, told him not to do something. He did it anyways. Balaam, too. God gave him some direction. Balaam was a prophet, and God spoke to him. And Balaam rejected God's word. He rejected God's authority. And Korah, too, he knew that God was speaking through Moses, and he rejected the authority of Moses, which was ultimately rejecting the authority of God. They all rejected God's word. They all all rejected God's authority. They did it for different reasons. Cain because of anger, Balaam because of greed, and Korah because of envy. It doesn't matter what the reason is when we look at the big picture. The big re- or the big picture is they rejected the authority of God's word. They rebelled against God. They knew the truth and they walked contrary to the truth. He's using these examples to explain uh, these false teachers and ultimately what's going to happen to them. He goes on to describe them, these false teachers, a little more in verse 12. Jude, verse 12. These are spots in your love feasts while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, laid autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Ultimately, the apostates, 
These false teachers, they're useless, they're fruitless, they're only in it for themselves, and basically they're going to face destruction. Now, there's a lot of really cool analogies that Jude uses there, and I encourage you, if you get the time to study some of them, we don't have time to, to go into all of that right now, but he's basically describing these apostates and these false teachers. Then he goes into speaking of Enoch in verse 14. He says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, he references Enoch. Enoch is mentioned in Genesis specifically 5. It says he walked with God and then he was no more. The Lord took him up. It's actually a picture of the rapture. Genesis 5 happens before what? Genesis 6. What happens in Genesis 6? Uh, the flood. Uh, but... The, the point is, we see that Enoch actually was a prophet, and there was a book of Enoch. Now, we see only this section of Enoch is quoted. So we can't say the book of Enoch is inspired scripture, but we can say that this scripture from Enoch is inspired scripture. Specifically this one, I'll reread it, verse 14. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. The main reason that Jude is mentioning this is because of the judgment that's going to happen to all apostates, past, present, and future. But he's also speaking of a significant event. The significant event is referring to the second coming of Christ. Okay, After the rapture, we'll talk about this in the next couple weeks. But we see in Zechariah chapter 14 and Revelation 19, and also here in Jude, that Jesus, when he comes to rule and reign on the earth, he's going to come with his saints. He's going to come with the church. He's going to come with the saints of old. And we are going to rule and reign with Christ. This is the specific event. Again, the heart is why he's mentioning this is that these people are going to be judged. Okay, they're going to face judgment. And we see the Lord do that as well when he comes with in his second coming. Jude verse 16. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. So he continues to describe these false teachers and he says here look back at verse 16 grumblers complainers walking according to their own lust swelling words flattering people to gain advantage they were deceiving people with their words ultimately they were leading people astray by the things that they were communicating now this was going on then paul tells us in second timothy chapter four that it's going to become a common thing as we get closer and closer to the end of time. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, again, believed to be Paul's last book written, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, he says, For the time will come, it's going to, 
when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. As we get closer and closer to the end, we're going to hear more and more false teachers that are going to turn us away from the truth to believe fables, to believe things that aren't true about God, convincing us of a different gospel. That's why it's so important for us to be in the Word of God, to know the truth of Scripture so we won't get, get, uh, get led astray by these deceptive words. He refers to this tickling the ears thing. It doesn't matter if something sounds good if it's not good, if it's not based on truth. He says there's going to be a lot of good, a lot of people out there that are great communicators but aren't sharing the actual truth of God's word. They are leading people astray. It was happening then. It's going to happen even more often as we enter into the last day. So to battle that, look what he says in verse 17. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. You guys, remember the word. That's point number four. Remember his word. Remember his word. How are you going to know when someone's teaching things that are deceptive and whether it's true or not? Well, if you remember his word, it'll either line up with scripture or it will contradict scripture. But if we don't remember the word, then we don't really know. That's why he says, remember the word. He doesn't just say, read the word. He doesn't just say, listen to the word. He says, remember the word of God. Meaning, don't just read it. Yes, read it. And don't just listen to it. Yes, listen to it. But meditate on it. Really think about what it's saying. Even try to memorize some of it if you can. We see there's great benefit of having this mentality when we approach the word of God. The first Psalm, Psalm 1. Verse 1 says this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Or in other words, the word of God. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. He meditates on the word. He delights in the word. He doesn't read it because he has to. He reads it because he wants to. And you know what happens? Fruits produced in his life. There's spiritual prosperity that he experiences. There's so many benefits to being not just in the word, but meditating on it, remembering it. As you read the word, whether it's in the mornings or nighttime, we're called to read the word every day. That's why it's referred to as our daily bread. But as we're in the word, don't just read it, walk away and not remember what you read. James tells us about that type of guy, right? You look in a mirror, you see what you are, you walk away, you forget. No, don't be that guy. Don't be that girl. Look at it, read it, try to get something out of it. What's the Lord trying to speak to me personally? 
I have a, an accountability uh, friend, partner, that, that we send our devotions to each other. And we don't just send the, the verse that we got out of that day or the chapter or the few chapters, whatever it is. We try to communicate, hey, what's the Lord trying to speak to me? You know what that does for me? It helps me really meditate on it. I, I, got, a, I got accountability and I'm going to send him something that, hey, this is what I think the Lord's trying to get across to me and this is what I'm going to be chewing on today. This is my bread for the day. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get that message across so I have accountability there so I'm not just reading something and forgetting it and I'm not the best reader okay it's I don't know why God made me a teacher I always got horrible grades in reading classes my whole life but to be able to meditate and to be able to remember as best as we can at least the message of what God is trying to get across it will help us not just walk in truth and prosper and bear fruit but it will also help us to discern when we're being deceived and that's why he's saying to do it remember the word so you're not deceived Verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh as we're in the word and believing the word and remembering the word, we'll be building ourselves up. Faith is something that's supposed to be built up. We're supposed to grow in it. But he also says this in verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. And that's the primary point of this little section. And that's the fifth point, final point that we'll discuss. Keep yourself in the love of God. Keep yourself in the love of God. That can be something that's kind of confusing. What does that mean to keep ourselves in the love of God? Well, Jesus, he explains it perfectly to the disciples. The night before his death, in John chapter 15, he speaks of his relationship with them, his relationship with us. He is the vine, we're the branches. He goes on to say in John chapter 15, verse 9, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Keep yourselves in the love of God. It means to abide in His love. He says, I love you, but abide in my love. That doesn't mean that we have to do something for God to love us. God loves us just the way we are. He loves us too much to let us stay that way. But for us to keep ourselves in the love of God, that's our responsibility. What does Jesus say? How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? How do we abide in the love of God? Keeping His commandments. Doing what He's asking us to do. This is what it looks like. God loves us no matter what. Say, this box is me keeping myself in the love of God. I'm being obedient to the things that the Lord uh, communicates in His Word. And, I, and I'm doing my best. When I'm disobedient, I step out of the love of God. That doesn't mean that God doesn't love me anymore. It means that I'm not experiencing the fullness of God's love. I'm robbing myself from the relationship. I'm selling myself short of the love of God that He wants me to experience. He loves us just as much. He can't love us anymore or any less but we can do something that determines whether or not we experience the vastness of that love. And Paul encourages the church of Ephesus in that specifically. In Ephesians chapter 3, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18, he says, 
Or look at verse 17 for context. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul says, I want you to know the love of God. I want you to know the weight of it. I want you to understand how much he loves you. How do we experience that? Keeping ourselves in the love. He loves us so much. But sometimes we don't feel like it. And when we don't feel like it, it's often because we're being disobedient in some area in our life. We've stepped outside of the love of God. We're no longer keeping ourselves in it. I don't know about you, but I want to know this, what this love is like. I want to experience it more and more as life goes on. How much higher, how much deeper, how much wider is God's love? But part of that's on me. He loves me so much, but it's my obligation to know how much. And how do I find out how much? Doing the things that he asks me to do. And look at what he says there in John chapter 15. He says, so that your joy may be full. Not so that my joy may be full, so that your joy, Jesus isn't doing this, he's not giving us commandments for his joy, he's giving us commandments for our joy. He says, I want you to have a joy-filled, love-filled life when you step outside of that obedience and choose your own path. You're robbing yourself of love, you're robbing yourself of joy. It's there, you're just no longer experiencing it. And lastly, Jude Last two verses, 24 and 25. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. When we keep ourselves in the love of God, he keeps us from stumbling. You see how we both have responsibilities there? He says, you keep yourself in the love of God and Christ will keep you from stumbling. In other words, if we're not keeping ourselves in the love of God and we step outside of it, we can expect to fall flat on our faces. <laughs> and, and, oh, well, he said he'll keep us from stumbling. Yeah, that's what he is called to do, but he can only do it if you're keeping yourself in the love of God. Here's the path. You won't stumble down this path. But when you go down a different path, you can expect to stumble. You keep yourself in the love of God and I'll keep you from stumbling. There's two responsibilities there. The Lord has one and we have one. If we stumble, it's not his fault. It means we weren't keeping ourselves in his love. That's what really stumbling is, stepping outside of it. Lastly, 25, to God our Savior, listen to this, who alone is wise. Hear that? Alone, meaning we're not wise. God alone is wise. We don't have all the wisdom. He has all the wisdom. Be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. If he has all the wisdom, then maybe we would be wise to listen to the wisdom that he gives us. And he gives us wisdom through his word. Yes, we can pray for wisdom. But the only reason we know that is because the word tells us that we can pray for wisdom. The wisdom of God is found in his word. If we're foolish and he's wise and he's our creator and and he gave us the book that instructs us how to live in this life, we ought to read it. We ought to, we ought to dive into it. Guys, you might be able to relate to this. Um, uh, women as well. <laughs> Guys are usually more guilty with this one. But uh, have you ever bought like a, um, 
like say a dresser or some type of table or a chair that you needed to put together. You ordered it, whatever, got it from Home Depot, it came in a box. And there were, what came with it? The tools, the supplies you needed and what? A manual, right? Instructions. And how many of you have said, I don't need to read the instructions. I'm just going to put it together on my own, right? How well did that go? Don't even tell me. But a lot of times, that's how we approach life. I don't need the manual. I don't need the instructions. I'm going to do this thing on my own. We're pretending like we're wise, but we're not. God alone is wise and he gave us the manual. He gave us the instructions. We would be fools not to look at it. He gives us everything that we need to know in this life. As far as our relationship with him and how to walk through this life. If we're not reading the instruction manual, then we're bound to stumble. We're bound to fall on our faces. It's all there for us and he gives it to us because he loves us. What are we going to do with it? Are we going to be in it? Are we going to keep ourselves in it? Are we going to try to do it his way or do it our own way? We each have to make that that decision. We each have to make that choice. Jude's heart in this epistle is that we would keep ourselves in the love of God. Ultimately, that means being obedient to, to what he asks us to do because he loves us so much and he only gives us good direction, things that benefit us specifically, even when we don't see it. He also gives us these things because he doesn't want us to get carried away by false doctrine, by lies, by, by false teaching, by all these other things that contradict Christianity, that contradict the Jesus Christ that's revealed through the scriptures. And most of us know these things, but it's not enough to just know it. It's what we do with it. Lastly, I'll finish here. In John chapter 13, John chapter 13, Verse 17, he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If you know these things, blessed or happy. That's what that word means in the Greek. Happy are you if you do them. But if we know these things and we don't do them, then we can expect not to be happy. We can expect not to be blessed. His heart behind his word is, yes, to pour out love on us, to reveal his love for us, but also so that we would respond to it and experience the blessedness, experience the joy-filled life, the abundant life. We know it, but what are we going to do with it? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us so much that you would give us these instructions, this truth, that you would show us how much you love us and, and help us to understand what it means to keep ourselves in your love. Lord, uh, I pray that you would give us hearts that diligently seek you, that our hearts would be so set on you, Lord, that we would be able to understand and know what is the height and depth and width and length of your love, Lord, and, and we would continue to grow in knowledge of that. Um, but we would also we would also keep ourselves in it, that we would be in a relationship with you um, that's that's consistent, that moves forward so we can experience all that you want for us uh, in this life. You're you're such a good father. And um, I pray that you would give us the strength to be good, uh, obedient children, because um, we know you ask us to do these things for for our sake so that our joy would be full. Lord, so we just love you so much and we thank you for for your word in your name. Amen.